0: I know somebody out there recognizes what she just did. (laughs) What comes next? Somebody knows. Chink, a chink, a chink, a chink, chink chink, chink, chink. Well, I guess it would be nice if I could touch your body. I know that not everybody has got a body like you. You know what I'm singing, right? That I better think twice before I give my heart away. And I know all the games you play because I play them too. But I need some time off from that emotion for to get my heart back on the floor. You can, you can clap. And dance when love comes down with without div. Oh, I tried this way too high. Well, I need some somethings, maybe, but I'm showing you the door because I gotta have. There we go. I gotta have faith, the faith, the faith, faith, baby. Okay, we're, we, can, we can stop there. It's it's a bop, it's a bop, you guys. You gotta love an organist. You can text on a Friday afternoon and be like, hey, can you play me into the pulpit with the organ intro to George Michael's Faith? And she and I thought like, oh, what am I asking? She's like, sure, no problem. There it is, Katie Burke, everybody, thank you. <laughs> there you are, our, our new candidate for Kazeeba music. George Michael's faith is the best breakup song I know. And it is a breakup song, right? Love is a battlefield. That's Pat Benatar, not George Michael. But we've got in George Michael's song, we've got these two lovers who are breaking up. George Michael is walking through the door before he gets in too deep because he knows that love is a fickle game. He's played it before. He's holding out for something better, something more. He knows that he is worth more than this game. That they're playing this is a song about empowerment right knowing that your heart is worth something better than abuse and scorn the games that love plays it's not unlike what what paul writes to timothy his young protege in the second letter to timothy the ford read for us god did not give us a spirit of cowardice paul reminds him god did not give us a spirit of fear god gave us a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline and then Jesus walks into the space in the beautiful voice of Shanna, this parable about faith that we read from Luke's gospel, and seems to come from an entirely different direction. We are worthless slaves. That's the line of faith that he gives to his disciples when they, when they ask for more of it, when they ask for more faith. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea. And then he tells them this story. He gives them this metaphor for the life of faith Grounded in the relationship of a master and his enslaved ones. Whom among you, Jesus asks his followers, when your slave comes in from laboring in the field, would ask him to sit down with you at the table? Would you not rather say, he says, would you not rather say, go and make me dinner? And then he piles on these offensive details, right? I can only conclude that this parable is precisely designed to make me squirm. Would you not rather say to your slave, he says, prepare supper for me, put on your apron, and serve me while I eat and drink. Later, you may eat and drink. Masters eat first, slaves eat last, and we don't eat at the same table. And you don't thank a slave. When he does what's commanded, the enslaved one knows his place. So also you. He turns to the disciples whom Je- who have asked Jesus to increase their faith. That's the prayer that is prompted the parable. So you too, he says, when you have done everything you've been ordered to do by God, your master and your Lord. So you say only we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. How many of us were taught some version of this relationship between God and people. God as a master. God as a lord. I mean, how many times have we referred to lord in this thing? That's a word that comes right out of the slave tradition. Any first century listener would have known exactly what Jesus was doing when he puts this word lord, kurios, into the words of this parable. That is the name that a master, that a slave gives to his master. This is a version of the relationship between God and people that has been particularly pernicious in the religious training of women. I think about the powerful mystic Teresa of Avila who is depicted on the cover of your bulletin this morning, a woman of great influence, of great power. She reformed monasteries. Her counsel and advice was sought out by popes and by kings. And yet she was told over and over again by her male confessors that the visions and the voices and the experiences that she was having of God in prayer were impossible because of her station in life because she was a woman. (laughs) Teresa was said to have levitated (laughs) sometimes. Talk about faith the size of a mustard seed, right? This woman, like, would rise up off the ground in prayer. She is said to have experienced God in shockingly intimate, physical ways that made her priests and confessors extremely suspicious. And so Teresa learned, she was no dummy, she learned as a strategy of of humility, this tactic to undercut her detractors. She She learned to refer to herself, at least in public, as a worthless slave, as a worm and no man, an insignificant daughter of Abraham. She signed every letter she wrote, your worthless slave, Teresa of Jesus. That was after she told them what they ought to do. Right? This is a tactic. This is a tactic. And there are some other tactics. There are some well-worn tactics that commentators have used to soften the harsher details of this parable that Jesus tells about masters and slaves. Some translators will translate the word Jesus uses as servant rather than slave. That feels a little more congenial to contemporary audiences. But i got to tell you, if Jesus had wanted to say servant, there are five or six good Greek words he could have used, and they are not the words he uses. The word he uses means slave. And slave of the most offensive kind, right? Bond servants, a human being who is owned by another human being who serves not because he's being paid or out of love or devotion. The slave serves because the slave knows if the slave doesn't serve, the slave will be beaten or killed. That's a powerful image. It's an offensive image. It's an image that I think would have shocked Jesus' first listeners. certainly shocks us. I think that's the point it's the part about the apron somehow that's that's the line that gets me that's where that's where I get stuck put on your apron and serve me apparently this is the voice of the master right I mean the whole the whole thing is horrible but the detail that sticks in my craw is the apron put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink that's, a, that's an expression that is particular to Luke's Gospel. Put on your apron is consistent with how Luke's Jesus imagines Christian service other places. But if I'm reading this parable not as a historical reflection of the Lucan community and their concerns, that's how I was taught to read this thing. That's a tactic too, by the way, as a dodging tactic. But if I'm, reading, if I'm reading this parable seriously, if I'm reading it as a literary unit, I think the apron is the tell in this thing. That's where I start to get this sneaking suspicion that Jesus is almost piling on the offensive details as a kind of awful hyperbole in order to draw his listeners' attention to the horror, horror of this idea that God thinks I should think of myself as no better than a slave. One, one way to read the story is to wrestle with what it means that Jesus seems to compare the life of faith to an economic system based on cruelty and violence. And another way is to ask what... What riddle, what deliberate offense he is offering as a way, I almost wonder, as a way of like inciting a slave rebellion of a kind. The prompting question for this little metaphor, this, this little parable that he offers to the disciples' request, increase our faith. And I gotta wonder, like, where is the faith in this story? Is it really blind obedience, blind subservience? Or is Jesus inviting us to find an image of faith, a faith that can, that can move a mulberry bush into the sea, if you like? in a spark of a a response to this parable, maybe a spark of rebellious anger, a mustard seed sized kernel of self-worth that says, hang on a dang second, I am not a worthless slave. And the reason I know I'm not a worthless slave is because I read my Bible, and my Bible tells me what I am. I am created in the image of God. And no circumstance of birth or education or class or station or race or creed or gender or sexuality can take that away from me. We are, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. I wonder if that's like a taunt, like an invitation, like, like fight back at me as if Jesus is saying, like, come at me, bro. Have you been paying attention at all? Do you, do you really think that enslavement is the path God has for you? This path isn't about obedience, this path is about freedom. I gotta say, I, I, I wrestle, I wrestle with the the pernicious effects of this parable, and many others like it, but the effects that they have had on the Christian tradition, the ways in which, I mean, we don't even hear the metaphor of master, Lord. We sang it in the, in the hymn, right? Like, we are servants of God. We sing this all the time, Lord God, Lord God. We don't, even, we don't even hear the echoes of the slavery system upon which those metaphors are based because they're so deeply ingrained in our liturgies and our hymns and our prayers. I mean, you start, you start pulling at that thread, and before long, it feels like the whole sweater of Christian Christianity starts to unravel and sometimes, I mean, sometimes you got to let George Michael get his word in edgewise because George Michael is talking about faith as well. I got to think twice before I give my heart away and I know all the games you play because I play them too. And then he says, I need some time off from that emotion. Some time to pick my heart up. Lift up your hearts, we say. Some time to pick my heart up off the floor. George Michael says, when love comes down without devotion, well, it takes a strong man, baby, but I'm showing you the door. George Michael locates faith not in a relationship of problematic devotion, abusive devotion, we might say, but rather in this still small voice that he hears inside of him as he prepares to leave a relationship That is giving him nothing but grief. It's time to walk away. That is what this song knows. And that's what Jesus knows too, I think. This parable about a master and a slave, read in one way, is is an invitation, if you like, to break up with a false image of God, a God who is no more to me than a master, a Lord who demands my obedience. Jesus understands exactly how toxic that kind of a God can be. And he, I think he sees his disciples struggling under this false God they've been taught to worship and to serve. And Jesus knows the name for every false God in his tradition, it's idolatry, right? An idol is the name you give to a false God. I think that's what he's illustrating, the kind of God who demands blind obedience in the way that a master demands it from enslaved property, a relationship grounded in mutual fear with nothing to do with love or respect or trust. When love comes down without devotion, as George Michael says, that ain't love at all. That's a relationship grounded in fear. That's idolatry. It is not faith. And it takes a strong heart, baby. But I'm showing you the door. Because i got to have faith. I expect that, like a lot of us, this image of God as my my master, my lord, the arbiter of behavior and moral authority, the the master-slave relationship, the master-servant relationship, if we want to be a little softer, I suspect that idea still has power for a lot of us. That's a concept, a metaphor, for the image between God and people that works, right? I like to think of myself as God's servant. I like to think of myself as somebody with a job to do for the kingdom. I want to sing, you know, we've got a thousand hymns, like the sea servants of God, your master proclaim and publish abroad his wonderful name. That's a bop too. And I'm not willing to lose it. I'm not willing to give up all the hymns like that. I want to sing that stuff at the top of my lungs. And also, I'm, I'm starting to, I'm beginning to see the ways in which that master-slave devotional image, how deep that goes for me. And for lots of us who were taught to, to pray in this particular way, to think of God in this particular way that has nothing to do with holiness and everything to do with policing power. That way of thinking about God touches deep on some parts of me that were trained to think of my body and everything it wanted as suspect at best and sinful at worst, liable for hellfire and damnation. A God who punishes and rewards is a lot easier to relate to actually than a God who simply loves, desperately and wantonly. Because punishment and reward, that fear-based system, that locates my worth in a place that I can control, right? It gives me a certain kind of power, a certain kind of agency. The ability to, to follow the rules and appease the ones with power is then mine, and I have a certain kind of, it, 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 it scratches an itch in me, the itch to please, the, the, the itch to think of myself as worthless. Whereas love is so much harder than that. Love is so much more demanding because love is centered in grace and there is nothing in God's grace that I can control or manipulate in order to get what I want. The only choice really is to choose to love back or to try anyway. And I think a piece of what that means is what Jesus is calling faith here. I think a piece of what faith means in this parable is the willingness to walk away from an idolatrous, abusive relationship, from a way of interacting with God that has a lot to do with pain and coercion and control and nothing to do with trust. At the beginning of the service, we prayed, Almighty and everlasting God, you are always more ready to hear than we are to pray. You are always eager to give more than either we desire or deserve. Our tradition, actually, for all of its problematic assumptions, it has wisdom. There is is wisdom here for how to navigate the false gods, the abusive relationships. These colics know something. Almighty God, you are always more eager to hear than we to pray. You are always more eager to give, and give more than we can even begin to hope for. So pour down upon us the abundance of your mercy. Forgive us those things that we are terrified of, but give us those good things which we are not worthy to ask, except through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ our Savior. A God who wants good things for me is not a God who thinks that I am worthless. I sometimes have a hard time believing myself worthy to ask, And maybe that's the project, breaking up with a God who tells me that I am a worthless slave and finding myself instead in the hands of a true and living God who makes me in God's image, who asks me to forsake every idol, every bad boyfriend and the dictates of a world built on slavery and control and embrace this far more dangerous idea that sometimes faith starts with rebellion. Sometimes faith starts with anger. Sometimes faith starts with freedom. And that maybe this continual process of conversion, a life of conversion and reconversion, is how I learn to wean myself off of a toxic fixation on authority and obedience and control, and learn instead how to love and how to trust. That path is harder than obedience. Sometimes slavery actually smells a lot like home for a lot of us, it feels like home. And so taking a step out of that toxicity, out of that trauma, sometimes feels like death. It's like leaving a bad relationship. But isn't that the whole point? The doorway to death is always the doorway into a richer life. That's the whole point about faith. What looks like a bad breakup turns out to be a doorway into something so much better. You learn how to hold out for the real thing, not not settling for the substitute when it comes along. You do not rest until you find the real thing. George Michael knew this. It takes a strong heart, baby. But I'm showing you the door. I'm walking through that door. You gotta have faith.